folks. Welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm Ross. And I'm Gordon. Hey, everyone. It's been a while since we've had a podcast because one person talking is boring. So now you have somebody not boring. Welcome, Gordon. Thank you, Russ. It's good to have you here. So, Gordon, when you came over, we talked. You, I asked you, you know, what were you doing recently from a photographic perspective that was perhaps interesting or causing you challenges? And the thing you brought up was backyard photography. Can you tell us a little bit more what you're talking about in the context of backyard photography? Well, uh, it's been something that has been forced on many of us. And for me, backyard photography has involved photography of flowers, plants, and backyard birds. Okay. I think that's probably true for a lot of folks these days, Uh, either not able to travel or not wanting to travel, difficulties in mixing with people. Sometimes it's also fatiguing being out you know, running up and down hills wearing a mask or whatever. Uh, so when you think about backyard photography, are there elements of it that you find easier or harder than others? The standard things of this is a flower, let's take a picture of it, is easy. The ability to take a flower that everybody else is going to say, oh, that's quite amazing, is not easy. I think I understand, but let's clarify that. So if I heard you right, making a pretty flower picture is pretty easy because flowers are inherently pretty. That's correct. But making a photograph of a flower that is compelling or has some kind of story or is otherwise different, that's where the challenges are? Correct. So have you found any solutions to that problem? It's an old one. Um, A lot of background video watching. There are some people who are very good at at it and many who are not. And watching the people that are good provide insight into kind of things that you can do to make it more compelling. Like what, for example? Uh, Different ways of photographing the flower, uh, providing a painterly look, which is something that I had not heard before I started looking up the flowers, Um, blurring the edges, uh, photographing a flower against different colors that are out of focus, uh, getting a shallow depth of field enough to get the flower in focus, but everything else out of focus. Those are the kind of things that I had to challenge myself with. Well, those all sound like pretty good solutions to the problem of getting past, look, it's another flower picture. Big whoop. Now, when you talk about taking the, fo- the photograph or making the photograph by looking at the flower differently before you get into the post-processing, some of the elements that you just talked about, what does that mean? Is that looking at the flower from a different angle, shooting it from a different perspective? How do you mean? Pretty much everything that you just mentioned. 
looking at the flowers head-on is what strikes you first. But uh, you get close enough and stare at it for long enough and look at it from different angles and you start seeing the details and the way individual components of the flower come together, which you can isolate to give you an intricate pattern, which is different. So are you suggesting that by spending time with the flower before squeezing the shutter, some of its natural structures or its inherent native composition helps you see it differently? I think I think it does. The, I believe it was Freeman Patterson who said, if you remove the label from an object, you see it in terms of shapes and colors and abstract visions, which is different. And that uh, has certainly proven to be true. And that would make it more interesting because that's not, respectively, that's not what everybody else has done. Because I see, you know, thousands of flower photographs and typically, look, it's the flower from the top, dead center in the middle of the frame, and it's very pretty. But is it something that you'd print 24 by 36 and put on your wall? I'm not sure that that's the case. But what you're talking about says I'm going to do something different. I'm going to look at things differently. I'm going to take a different approach and capture it in a manner that you wouldn't normally see, like if you're walking past a flower. Am I hearing it correctly? Yes, uh, and, and that's what I, I've been aiming for. I think I have a long way to go, but I am. the more I do it, the more I see in it. And hopefully, uh, it'll keep on changing. It's also infinite. Um, Unlike what the poets may have said, a rose is not a rose is not a rose. Uh, you look at it and it's all kinds of wonderful things that you can make it into. So there's more to it than that? I think so. So one of the things that I found in, in flowers, and in the context of backyard photography, when I start to look at a flower and I look at its structural components, and I'm trying to find story, because at least in my mind, a photograph without a story is probably pretty, but it's just a snapshot. I've noticed that there are patterns in the in the petals, for example, that you just don't notice until you spend time looking at the flower. And maybe a, you talked about close-up work. As you focus in on those things, they create perhaps representations of landscapes. You know, I've seen in my deluded mind, fields of wheat in a single flower petal just because of the patterns. Do you find the same sort of thing happens when you're working that way? Yes, um, I, I think but what you see is where your mind takes you. Um, so being open to it's not just a flower is helpful. That's correct. When you're, uh, when you're photographing, what are you, where are you positioned in the context of, the, of, let's talk about the flower for the moment. Are you close to the flower? Are you some distance away? 
you talked about using different lenses for backyard photography. Are there some tools that you have found, you know, as you continue on the path, because it's a journey, there's no destination involved, that help you achieve your goal better than some others? And I realize it's personal, not the same for everybody, but I'm curious. Well, the, the standard, standard teaching basically seems to be that if you have a macro lens, you will get close to the flower, you'll be able to fill the frame with the flower, and uh, it's a good thing to do. Uh, some of the teachers out there actually shoot more with a slightly, well, not a, not a macro lens, but maybe an intermediate to short uh, telephoto lens. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am finding these days that I'm doing a lot of flower photography with my 600 millimeter equivalent uh, zoom lens. No, no, sorry, not zoom lens, but uh, telephoto lens. Okay, that's that's really really interesting. Let's talk about that a little bit more because I agree. You know, in the years that I've taught macro photography or been involved in the photographic industry, someone says close up. The next thing you hear is macro lens. The next thing you hear is perfect for flowers, and you're saying yes, but there is an alternative in using a very narrow angle of view from a greater distance away. What do you see differently when you use that, let's call it 600 millimeter effective focal length, that you don't see with a macro lens? Um, I can see individual components of the flower, maybe the entire center of the flower, that depending upon the lens and how close uh, your lens will focus, uh, you can fill the whole frame with just the center. Or you can step back and shorten the depth of field so that it doesn't matter how cluttered the background is. You have a very clean background with only the flower in focus. Um, also, the addition is if there is wildlife involved, bees coming by or flying through or settling on, you are not likely to disturb those because of your distance and you get um, a double whammy. I think that's a really interesting comment because one of the complaints that we hear is, oh, these great macro photos, they've always got a ladybug or they've got a bee or something, but they contribute to the story. But your experience seems to echo my own. If you're sitting on top of the flower, no critters are coming by. That's correct. And if one does come by, you may not want to be that close. So what you're describing um, is what we frequently refer to as standoff distance. You're able to make the image that you wish without being jammed right on top of the entity. Uh, In this case, we're talking about a flower, but it could be a uh, it could be a small bird. It could be an insect. It really could could be a pattern, for example, on something that you just can't physically get to. So your proposal, if I hear you right, is while macro lenses are great, 
don't get trapped into thinking the only way to do close-up is with macro lenses. Yes, I, I would I would say that that's uh, an accurate interpretation. Now, one of the things that you mentioned already that I thought was very telling was being able to make the photograph within the close focus limits of the lens. Now, we know that when we're focused at the lens's closest point, we also have the least amount of depth of field at whatever lens opening we're using. And because we're outside doing backyard work, presumably there may be elemental considerations that require you to keep a higher rather than slower shutter speed. So, you know, wind or breeze doesn't move everything in and out of focus while you're trying to photograph. Would it be useful if you could change the close focus capability of that lens, that 600 mil equivalent, if you could get closer? Um, not sure I understand what you're asking me. Okay. The reason I'm asking this is one of my friends and teachers, uh, Moose Peterson, who's a very well-known wildlife ah, photographer. Yes, I understand that now. Okay. Uh, has suggested exactly what you're talking about. Go to the longer focal length. Increase your standoff distance, but if your lens isn't designed for reasonable close focus. Yes. That by using a, a, an extension tube between the lens and the camera body, okay, you're going to lose infinity focus, but you're doing backyard work anyway, so infinity doesn't matter. So by inserting that extension tube, it will allow you to focus closer and create a, an effect of increased magnification. As you are pursuing this goal that you talk about, whereas to see the story in the flower, do you think that that's something that anybody could use? I, I think so. I think uh, I've never tried it myself, um, mainly because I don't have a set of close focus rings. But it could well be a very interesting approach to to getting more magnification uh, while still being quite a distance away from the flower. So and, I, th I think that would be a, an interesting approach to things. And for all the same reasons that you talked about earlier. Yes. Maintaining your standoff distance, not disturbing the critters in the space, and giving yourself a little bit more environmental room while increasing magnification to get the detail that you, you indicated is what makes the image compelling. Yes. Okay. I think that's a, that's a good approach to it. Now, I know, Gord, because we've been friends for a long time, you're one of the few people that I know who's not afraid of the flash. So how much does flash play into backyard photography for you? And it doesn't have to be flowers because you've done some, in my opinion, some brilliant bird work with flash, but it's clearly outdoors. Can you talk about that a bit? I like flash and uh, I, I have you to thank for that. Um, because you have certainly driven it into us uh, again and again. But it uh, it adds a lot uh, to the photograph if you can use it properly. Uh, it adds a degree of vibrancy 
it uh, brings out some highlights and in a situation where you may have heavier shadows than you would like to see in a flower it's a very effective way of cutting those shadows down um, so I use flash a lot and I'm still on the learning curve of that um, but I can see it going in a direction of not only illuminating the flash the flower from the side or from the top or cutting down shadows but something I watched yesterday uh, in a in a wildlife context is this photographer took the first shot uh, as the standard okay I can print this uh, kind of shot but then he went to severe underexposing and rim lighting everything that he saw. And the, as I have to admit, the effects were astounding. And it's something I would like to try in, in the backyard photography. So in that context, because I'd like to learn more about that. So this photographer underexposed the ambient light? Mm -hmm. and then use the flash. Well, either the flash or what was already there. I see. Okay. Or moved himself into a position where he had backlight. Got it. And exposed, underexposed in those situations. So he used the flash as his source of light, not being solely dependent on what was there. What if, if necessary, but not always. Okay. If the, if the sun was coming from the from the right, um, he would step left so that he got his subject between him and the light. Right. Okay, so it was intentional backlight. It, that was intentional in, in an animal context, so less doable, I think, than with flowers. No, that makes perfect sense because I guess with the flower, you've got more room to move. Correct. Without scaring the critter off. Right. Uh, that's very interesting. Now, let's come back to that flash because you said you use flash a lot. Where is the flash? Is it on the camera? Never. Well, not never, but hardly ever. Hardly ever. <laughs> hardly ever, which smells a lot like never, I think. Pretty much. So how are you triggering the flash? Uh, I'm seldom out there without a radio trigger already mounted on my camera. Okay. Uh, I generally, I almost always have a tripod because uh, it allows me to uh, leave the camera where it is and move myself around with the flash in my hand to get it into a position where I want to use it. And I trigger with a cabled um, shutter release. So you're really not touching the camera at I'm all. not touching the camera. Okay, I think the rationale for that is to avoid introducing camera shake, am I right? Partly to avoid camera shake, but I don't have that long arms. So if I want to uh -huh. be behind the, behind the flower with the flash in my hand, I've got to have something, I've got to have an extension. Okay. And the cable is it. And the cable releases are inexpensive and they're reliable. They're inexpensive and they're reliable. I know a lot of folks have struggled with uh, 
you know, it seems most every camera will take one of those infrared trigger things. I've never ever been able to get those to work with any level of consistency. I know that radio triggers also exist, but then you may have a space consideration. Where do I hang the receiver and my flash transmitter and, you know, my tripod and my pan head and all the other junk? It sounds like you've got a simple solution that just works. Yeah, I, I look at I look at the flower. I twist myself into a pretzel shape until I get an image that I think I like, and then I twist the tripod into a pretzel shape and leave the camera pointing at what I want, and wander around. And so obviously, this is going to be a leading question. Once you plant the tripod, do you ever move it? Oh, after the shot, you certainly. Oh. Well, after after the shot that I first planted it for, but then I start looking to see whether maybe a move is a little better, maybe a little more to the left, a little more to the right, down a bit, stretch the legs out. And I, I, the reason I say it's a leading question is because, uh, as you know, this is one of my frustrations with folks in tripods. They put it down and it appears to have sunk into a gravity well and can never be moved again. But we can move, so why can't our tripods move? The tripod can and does. Now, in addition to, obviously, the stability that the tripod gives you, what other benefits does it bring in your experience? Well, the stability. Uh, once you've got it positioned in your camera position, you're no longer twisted in, into an awkward shape. Um, you are not entirely dependent upon increasing your shutter speed or your ISO to overcome the vibration or the movement of the wind, you can sit and wait. And when it dies down and you're ready to shoot or the sun comes back to where it was, you have your shot already lined up and set up and you take it. So the tripod is also a means of creating relaxation or at least less stress in the shooting environment. Absolutely. I think this is a really important point, folks, that Sometimes we may miss that the tripod does more than just hold the camera. It provides all of us an opportunity to step back and take a breath. Now, Gordon, when you're using a tripod, is there a particular, uh, in the context of backyard photography specifically, but in general, is there a particular type of tripod head that you find works best for you? Um, I for the backyard photography, I almost exclusively use a, a ball head. Okay. Um, yes, pretty much always for, for, for something that's going to be stable, I will use a ball head. Okay. Now, what about something like backyard birds? Backyard birds, I will be shooting with a long telephoto. And for that, I will use a gimbal head. Okay. And for um, those who may not be familiar, a gimbal is a special type of tripod head. Mounts to most any tripod. Correct. But typically not shipped with the tripod. So you'd want to get a quality gimbal from a, you know, your trusted photographic retailer. Yes. 
The, the advantage of the gimbal is that unlike a tripod or a ball head that you have to lock down, um, once you have the gimbal set up properly, you can move it in a 360-degree arc and your camera should not... You can leave it pointing it at whatever you want and it shouldn't move. You can lock it down, but should your subject move, you have the ability to move with it without having to adjust three different separate controls. So it's not only stable, it's also more convenient for a subject that's probably not obeying your stage direction. Correct. Mr. Bird, stand still, turn right. The downside of a gimbal is it's it's hard to use with a lens that does not have a lens foot, perhaps. Okay. Uh, it's difficult to mount a camera with a, with a macro lens uh, on a gimbal head. Unless that lens has a foot. Unless that lens has a foot. Oh, yeah. yeah. And if you're, for folks who are listening, uh, a foot is simply a way to mount a, a lens directly to the tripod. So the lens mounts to the tripod head, the camera body doesn't. Correct. And it kind of creates a balancing it is. exercise as well, right? It is. So when you set the camera up, you've got to move, you've got to play with the position of the foot, which can move back and forth uh, until you find the right balance. And once you've established that for that lens, uh, I put a marking on the on the gimbal and and on the foot, so that next time I come back to that, I know I don't have to play with the position again. I just put lock it into the same position it was, and I have a balanced camera. And that's more convenient and easier to shoot with. It's a lot faster. It's a lot more convenient, uh, and allows you to track things much easier. Now, I know that you've, because I've had the pleasure to photograph with you, you've got way more patience than I do when it comes to birds. Uh, do you find that that setup helps you with birds, even in, just in the backyard? Absolutely. Okay. Um, and again, it's, it's the same thing. You, you can watch the bird. You know where it's going to come. You figure out where it's going to come from, and you have the choice of either pre-focusing on what the bird's pattern and landing area is, or you can track it incoming and get the action shot as it approaches. On that topic of action shots, does Flash enter into this at this point? It doesn't have to, but it can. Okay. What are the benefits, if any, of using the flash in these avian action type of orient photographs? Um, there, there are a couple. If your lighting is not optimum, you can shoot at perhaps lower ISO, uh, getting around the dread concept of noise. Um, the flash, again, in overcast days, or should you be in the shade, uh, adds a certain vibrancy kick to the, to the image. And um, 
if the bird you're trying to get is really in a dark corner, depending on, on the setup that you use, you can use it to illuminate uh, the flash, to, to illuminate the bird. I believe it has to be used with a degree of caution, taking the nature of wildlife into consideration. Uh, I don't believe the flash should ever be used at full blast. Mm -hmm. You should not be uh, making an attempt to startle the bird. And if you can do it with just enough flash to achieve the degree of vibrancy you're looking for, then uh, without startling the bird, then it's, it's a good thing. So I think this is a really good point that you're making. We're using flash not necessarily as your primary light source. Using it to supplement the light that is already there, although you could do something otherwise. But you're also using it to offset poor color balance due to shade, due to, you know, screening, for example, sunlight coming through green leaves that's going to introduce a color cast. You're using it to pull out iridescence that exists in, in feathers that you're just not going to get any other way. And so long as you use it with... Um, in, in a prudent type of way, you're going to be able to make a nice, sharp image of, of the bird without creating, you know, some type of medical issue for it. Mm -hmm. And I think that you're saying don't go full blast. So then I think you're also saying you don't need a giant flash. No. You know, you're not, you don't have to pull out a 2400 watt second pack. So the speed light, your normal speed light, would do the job. Yes. Uh, based on, uh, as an addition to what you just said, uh, if you, in the backyard context, you can actually set your flash up uh, reasonably close to where the bird is going to be coming in, which means that you really don't need a whole lot of flash if you're triggering it with a radio trigger. You can be anywhere in the garden, but the flash is next to the bird, and we are shooting at 116th, 132, 164th power. The birds don't even see it. And I know the bird doesn't see it because I've done that with hummingbirds on my back deck. And I was paying particular attention to see what the bird's reaction would be. And at about 1 16th power, the hummingbird didn't care. Right. Right. I know that there's some misrepresentation and misunderstanding about the impact of flash on, on a critter's eyes. You know, we don't like to fire a flash into anybody's eyes or anybody anything's eyes, but there is no evidence according to ornithologists that flashes are damaging to birds presuming we're using them again in a prudent fashion now i like your idea that you describe about pre-positioning the flash how do you wh where do you put the flash does it sit on a stand how do you can how do you hold it in place any way you can okay is there any tools that you use um <clears throat> well i do use um small light stands uh, Manfrotto also makes a clamp 
which um, I clamp onto pretty much if there's a fence, or if there's a branch, or if there's um, pretty much anything that will take the weight of a flash. Okay. Um, and uh, so the the clamp locks onto whatever your your stabilizer is. And into that, you screw the um, light, uh, what do you call those things? The cold shoe? Cold shoes. So, right. you, so you fit the cold shoe onto, onto the clamp, and then you adjust the clamp to wherever you want it to point. Okay. So again, folks, there's a, a number of options here. Uh, Gordon's described a very popular <coughs> option from Manfrotto. They are available from third parties. The Manfrotto ones I would submit are better built and will last you your lifetime. So spend the extra five bucks and get the real thing. And they will clamp very nicely to um, feeder poles, to branches. Anything. Anything like that. And Manfrotto also does something that we euphemistically refer to as a Justin clamp. And it's basically a giant tweezer type of thing. And you can just squeeze, you squeeze it to open the jaws. When you let it go, the jaws close. It's got rubber feet, so it doesn't twist around. And again, you can get those with little ball heads. They're not going to hold your camera, but they will hold your speed light. Just use of, of the cold shoe. And why the cold shoe? So we don't short out the electronics in our flash. Not, not hard to find. Uh, pretty ubiquitously available. Uh, and micro ball heads for, to hold your flash. There is no need to spend a fortune on. You can get a pack of five, probably for under $30 on Amazon. And they're going to be potentially exactly the same as the ones that you'll pay a lot more for with some ma maker's brand on them. They're going to have a one quarter 20 mount, just like any other type of mount or flash or, or device, even similar to some uh, small tripod heads. So... Very, very easy to use. I think Gord's suggestion here is it, it makes a lot of sense. And they don't take up a lot of space in the, in the gadget bag. No. So we've talked a little bit about, you know, the, the process for flowers and going in that case with the longer lens but focused close, using the flash for flowers. You talked about birds, either on a feeder or just in trees in the backyard. Um, any other elements of backyard photography that have been uh, of interest to you, you know, as we're starting to hopefully exit this COVID lockdown nonsense? Well, I, I'd, uh, again, just recently um, seen uh, the concept of creating a backyard uh, bird photography area which seemed like <clears throat> such a good idea to me that I went out and pilfered everybody else's spare branches from their trees and all those branches are now zip tied to my fence because birds will frequently come in and land on the branches look around make sure it's safe to get to the feeder and then uh, while, while they're sitting there and looking around or the other birds are chasing them away, uh, that becomes uh, 
an opportunity for a very naturalistic looking uh, looking image without having bird feeders and poles sticking out into the image. Well, I I have to echo your comment there. <clears throat> Um, I talked about moose earlier. This is something that he advocates. Um, screwing branches or <laughs> cable tying branches or, in, into a manner that will encourage the birds to feel comfortable and come a little closer. Because if we can half the distance between the subject and the camera, we gain an awful lot of flexibility and capability. Uh, you don't need quite as much glass. You're not quite so visible. It's not as heavy. So there's a lot of benefit to what you're proposing there. It's a great suggestion. Thanks. Welcome. Are there any other areas of, you mentioned, actually there are, because you mentioned painterly effects and, and, and using blurring and manipulating the background. Is that all in post-processing? Um, <coughs> excuse me. One, uh, some of it is post-processing. A lot of it is in how you take the photograph. So the painterly effect from what I am learning begins in the camera. Um, you aim for selective focus of whatever it is you're trying to get to. You get the lighting so that there are no dark spots or harsh shadows. You get the background that's blurring for, however, you simplify the image so that you don't have a lot of clutter in it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you use uh, whatever you need to use to get the blurring around the edges of your image and uh, you complete the job in post-processing. But if you don't want to spend a lot of time post-processing, then you've got to get it right in camera. So that, I think, is probably the most telling comment that we can have in this area. What I'm hearing from you, and, and I would be inclined to say, is throwing presets at stuff isn't going to fix them if you didn't start in the right place. Start with the proper intent and maybe use the tools to enhance that intent, but not create it fresh after, you know, three months after you made the photograph. Am I hearing you right? That's, uh, yeah, I, but I don't have an attention span that long. So if I don't, if it doesn't look good when it came out of the camera, it's unlikely to happen later. So on that topic, let's close on, on that. Have you ever made photographs that you didn't think worth keeping? Uh, how about 99% of the time? Right. So what do you do with the ones that you don't feel are worth keeping? Well, somebody showed me the star system uh, that can be implemented, uh, certainly in Lightroom. I don't know about other systems. But my first pass over the images uh, get either rejected outright or labeled as a one or a two. The ones are pretty guaranteed, ones and below are pretty much guaranteed to hit the garbage can. 
Two, I will go back and look at and decide whether they actually are a two or whether they should go up or go down. So on the second pass, uh, they'll get shuffled a bit more. And in reality, the threes are probably what will get processed. Okay, that seems fair. So you go through a somewhat diligent culling process to heave the junk, and then you throw it away. It's gone. You're not keeping it around on drives, because sometimes 30 years from now, you might want to look at something that was out of focus and crappy. I started out that way. I'm not there anymore. I think a lot of us started out there. Oh, I, I better <clears throat> keep everything. But if you're not going to use it, why keep it? Yeah. In reality, the, the chance, if there's a possibility when I'm doing it that I can see a silhouette of a tree and I can see in one and I can see a moon in another and something triggers that says, well, you can move these two together, then I leave it as a two. And that gives me reason to go back and look at some point. But if I see no possibility in it in the second, second or third pass, then I'm never going back to it. And that makes good sense. I think one of the things that I would like listeners to take away um, from anything that I write or that we put on this podcast is there's absolutely no reason to keep junk. If you're not going to use it again, throw it away. Otherwise, you're going to end up with hundreds of thousands of images cluttering up your library, and you're never going to use them. And yes, space is effectively free, but you still have to deal with them. And that's a real challenge. Gordon, thanks so much for being here for this episode. I'm looking forward to our next one. This went so well. I'll well, we'll think, uh, think harder, harder on the next one and see what we can really get complicated with. <laughs> well, no, that was great. So, folks, this has been Make Better Photos and Videos, uh, the podcast at the Photo Video Guy. I want to thank my co-host, Gordon, and thank you all for listening. And until next time, peace. <laughs>